The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, September 30th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And it's Attorney General Week here on The Gist. Yesterday, Alberto Gonzalez, he was an Attorney General. Tomorrow, we're going to have an Attorney General to be named later. All right, I'll tell you who it is. It's Maryland's Attorney General. By the way, Alberto Gonzalez was not the first AG to have the initials AG. Now, if you go through the list of Attorneys General, I am, of course... Not speaking of Ebenezer Hoare, U.S. Grant's attorney general, who served with Ham Fish. How do we not have historical fiction about Ebenezer Hoare, Ham Fish, and Ebenezer Hoare's brother, George Frisbee Hoare? You're a Frisbee Hoare. That got said a lot to me while I was playing Ultimate in college. I am not talking about Philander Chase Knox, an attorney general under McKinley and Roosevelt. How this guy was not secretary of the treasury with the name Chase Knox. The guy was Philander Here's a little detail about Philander Knox. Knox's nickname was Sleepy Phil, as he was said to have dozed off during board meetings or because he was cross-eyed. I'm not talking about Charles Buonaparte. Yes, he was of Corsican ancestry and was the great-grandnephew of Emperor Napoleon. No, the AG, AG I'm talking of, was Augustus Garland, Grover Cleveland's attorney general. And man, what a story he has. He was the governor of Arkansas. He was a senator from Arkansas during the Confederacy, but didn't really want to leave the Union. Then when he came back to the Union, they didn't let him serve, even though he was always loyal to the Union. And he took a case to the Supreme Court. Ex parte Garland won that case, was the attorney general, had a rich, full life, wrote all these books about the Supreme Court. And he actually died. He had a stroke while arguing a case before the Supreme Court. Get to know your U.S. attorneys general. Augustus Garland, we salute you. Now, at top of the show where you heard that voice, that's Andy talking, saying there will be explicit content today. Oh, yeah, it's explicit. We're doing a rather long discussion about an interesting period in porn. It was in between stag films and before the birth of, like, Debbie Does Dallas and Deep Throat, where it really was the province of art films and artists and Andy Warhol and people trying to make cool, trippy, and bonafide, interesting artistic choices. So I talked to an expert, and I bring you this conversation now. You're welcome. Look, a lot of people watch porn. I mean, admit it. People watch porn, but very few people watch pornography and look at the couches. I'm sitting here with a person who does that. I am minimizing and reducing her life's work, but that is a part of what Ara Osterweil does. She's the author of Flesh Cinema, The Corporeal Turn, an American avant-garde film. Hello, Ara. Hi. The couch in question is what? Andy Warhol's couch? Yeah. What's important about Andy Warhol's couch? So Warhol's couch was the center of the factory, which was his studio. And in one particular film that he made in 1964, the entire narrative arc of the film revolves around people hanging out on the couch. And some of those reels are sexually explicit. Many are not, but the ones that are, to me, are the most interesting. But there's always other people sort of walking around and interrupting because it's a very public space. So it's interesting to uh, film 
sex acts on that couch. Now, let's take two steps back. Okay. Let's talk about the era that you explore, mm-hmm. 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And Andy Warhol himself, I think in the world of art, he's unbelievably famous. People debate how important he is. Mm-hmm. But in this world, erotic cinema, mm-hmm. he really is important, right? Mm-hmm. Well, for a long time, Warhol was known just for his silk screens, and he produced a body of films in five years between 63 and 68 that transformed American cinema. And he made hundreds of films, but then after he died, they were pulled out of circulation. And so they didn't really trickle down in the same way and impact public consciousness in the decades after his death. And they started being reintroduced in the 1990s. And so ever since then, we're sort of still grappling with how Warhol's five years as a filmmaker, you know, transformed American cinema. And one of the things that I became interested in was how fascinated he was with representing the human body in very simple motions. And so he starts with films like Eat and Sleep in 1963, which are sort of motion studies just of people doing that. And they're very long and drawn out. And then he... Sleep lasts how long? Sleep is over six hours. But one of the things about Warhol's films is that they were unavailable for so long that there were a couple descriptions that had been floating around about these films that everybody started quoting. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's this kind of myth that sleep is just, you know, endless footage of a man sleeping or empire is endless footage of the Empire State Building. But sleep is actually a loop. It's sort of the same few minutes of a man sleeping being looped over and over again. But, of course, you'd actually have to see the film to know that. So Empire, too. Although that's a static shot and it takes a while to figure out. Well, that... it's between, you know, dusk and dawn. Yeah. So, in some ways, a lot changes. Yeah. Yeah. If you have was he doing stamina. It as, was he trying to, like, pull a fast one on the audience by doing the loop? Yeah. I mean, that's one way of thinking about it. Yeah. And when so his uh, exploration of I love the word corporeal, right? Okay. His, of the body, right? Yeah. So his exploration of the body was he trying to be provocative? Did he just maybe have fewer hangups than the rest of society had hangups? That we should be looking at ourselves more. That he was, you know, pointing a camera at someone and just filming them. Sometimes filming people having sex. Sometimes doing a 40-minute film of a guy's face, maybe, while he gets oral sex, and we'll talk about that in a, in a second. So what were uh, Warhol's m- motivations? I mean, Warhol's always been described as a voyeur, somebody who, you know, collected all of these really creative and sometimes ecstatic people around him and liked to watch. Warhol had a special interest in filming sex. It took him a while to get there, but he always said that he wanted to make a film called Fuck that was about fucking in the same way that Eat was about eating. Of course, Eat's not really about eating, even though somebody eats a mushroom on it for 45 minutes. It's about time and what happens to a performer when they're in front of a camera and have to compose themselves for a gaze that's not their own. And so I think sex for Warhol was particularly interesting because it was so challenging for performers to compose themselves and behave as if they were having a kind of intimate encounter when, in fact, it was being filmed. And he was interested in that dynamic. And and so he made Eat in, what, 63? Right. Right. When did he get brave enough to start uh, venturing into the sex game? Not long after, although he made so many films every year that it was, you know, dozens and dozens of films later. But Couch comes out in 1964, and then his... One of his other really explicit films comes out in 1968, and it's called Blue Movie. 
And that was the last film that Warhol ever made. And it's really about heterosexual sex and a couple and their intimacy. And I always think it's, I mean, he had been shot by Valerie Solanas in 68. And that's the official reason why he retired from filmmaking. But I always think it's interesting that he goes out with Blue Movie, that he had sort of broken up sex into its component parts. So there's films about a blowjob, there's films about a haircut, there are all these films about looking or sleeping. And he starts to reassemble sex from these component parts. And when he finally puts it all together, that's it. It's sort of the culmination of his career. Well, what does it say that it's a heterosexual sex act? Well, in a way, it doesn't involve him. And so he's totally removed from the action and he's trying in this world's films can be quite sadistic to the performers because they're asking them they're so long some of them and you know sometimes kind of off-screen interlocutors are asking the performers really prying questions and so they tend to be quite sadistic and in blue movie the performers end up being able to have a good time in spite of Warhol's camera and in spite of all of his intrusions, and it's almost as if he's no longer necessary. What did Warhol find kinky? I guess his sexual persona emerges from a lot of things that he said about sex. He has a great book that he wrote called The Philosophy of Andy Warhol, and he talks about how useful it is to bring a third person on a date because they prevent anything from happening. Well, does he say this stuff to be, like, to be like the Bob Dylan or to be a, a sphinx or to be provocative? How much, when you read his book, how much can you take it or watch his movies, how much can you take at surface level? I mean, I guess he's like Oscar Wilde in some way that he's really playing with discourse to provoke us. And Warhol, one of the things that's so fascinating about Warhol is that he knew he had this uncanny ability to locate the most sensitive aspects of his contemporary culture And yet rather than approaching them sensationally, he has this kind of cool observational style. And it's that combination of dealing with these really taboo subjects in such a cool way that makes him so provocative. So his provocativeness comes from his detachment in a way. Why after he got shot did he get out of the movie game? I mean, he was devastated by the wounds that he suffered. And for the rest of his life, he wore a kind of tiny corset under his clothes that was really holding his organs in. Like, he never really recovered, so there's that. But also, while he was in the hospital, John Schlesinger was filming Midnight Cowboy, and a bunch of Warhol's associates at the factories, including his assistant Paul Morrissey and Viva, and a lot of his stars went to work on that Hollywood film. Yeah. and there's that famous scene in the... Is it explicitly yeah. supposed to be the factory? I always yeah. thought it was the factory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's... So he, it becomes mainstream. I mean, the mainstream discovers what Warhol had been doing throughout the whole 60s, and so it's almost as if the world is caught up with him and there's no more need to make films. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So porn, you know, we always talk about the pornification of America, and it means a couple of things, but... Did what he did cause porn to be more more mainstream? Or if you were to create, you know, a lineage of Warhol and the people like him, is he actually influencing other things as much or more than he's influencing what we come to think of as pornography today? I would say Warhol's influence and pornography can be seen more in amateur pornography, the sort of you-porn generation of people just having a static camera 
not a lot of close-ups, not a lot of editing, static camera, watching what everyday people are doing. That's what Warhol was interested in. But but they're not trying. I don't think most of the people doing amateur porn are trying to do that. That just happens to be a side effect of what they're doing, right? Well, it's a different visual code in a way. Like commercial hardcore pornography is really concerned with the maximum visibility of body parts and seeing everything. And yeah. so all of these unnatural camera angles and edits are there to describe what is in indescribable. Amateur porn is sort of different. It's interested in authenticity. And Warhol was interested in this paradox of performed authenticity. Um, but a lot of times when I show these films to people... They say, that's not pornography. Yeah. You know, because we're not turned on. Like, we're bored to tears. And so Warhol's, you know, it depends how you define pornography. I define it as, you know, visual culture that shows explicit sex acts. But it can be doing that for very different effect. It's not entirely, it is titillating to some, to me, to many. But that's not its entire goal. So it's sometimes difficult to recognize it as pornography, how we think of that in the conventional sense. So Warhol was interested in people composing themselves. Like yes. How they, mm-hmm. Now there's a code for it, right? Now there's like pretty much a set of rules about how a porn uh, performer composes himself or herself. Right. Is that sad? Sad for whom? I don't know. Is less interesting? For I you, mean, for what you do, for writing books with the word corporeal in the subtitle. Yeah, it's certainly not that interesting to me. I'm in, I mean, sex is difficult. Sex, pornography has this idea, right, the sort of pornotopia, that sex is easy and transparent and always pleasurable and fulfilling. And I'm more interested in sex that's not personally maybe, but in terms of what I like to watch, that's awkward and tense and complicated. That speaks to me. I mean, obviously I recognize that I'm in the minority and some of the films that I write about in the book are really ecstatic and immersive. They're not all like Warhol. Now let's talk about (laughs) it because we've been dancing around it. Big 1964 film. It's 40 minutes. It's called Blowjob. Mm -hmm. It's a guy's face. Mm -hmm. That's it. Mm -hmm. It's not known if the actor in the movie is actually receiving oral sex. Right. It's not meant to be known. Right. Have you tried to find out if what really happened? (laughs) Um, Or is the mystery a part of the appeal? I haven't tried to find out what really happened. Uh-huh. For a long time, the performer wasn't known, and now he is. His name's actually slipping my mind. I'm No, I'm not interested in that. I'm actually interested in what you get from the ambiguity. And, you know, when that film was shown at Columbia, I think, you know, in the 60s to a bunch of students, there's this story that they were chanting, like, we shall never come. They're probably singing it to the they tune were singing. of We Shall Overcome. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, That's clever. <laughs> they were upset because they thought they were going to see a sex film by Andy Warhol, and then nothing happens, and there's just a man's face for 40 minutes. So they were upset because their expectations had been aroused that they were going to see a dirty movie, and it was just a face. They definitely wanted to see the sex. I mean, in 1964, it was pretty hard to see the sex on screen, which is why all sorts of people flocked to these films who wouldn't have ever gone to an avant-garde you know, film screening otherwise. But instead of thinking about what these films withhold, I'm more interested in thinking about what they give us. And what they give us is a face that we can you know, scrutinize and be enthralled to for a very long time. And so it's sort of replacing what we think of as, you know, titillating with something else. It's It's meant to frustrate, but it's not it's also meant to turn on in some way. Do you think if that movie were called Heroin or, or Acid Trip or something, 
I mean, people would watch it and say, you know, he's ecstatic. It's almost like he's mm-hmm. in the throes of sexual mm-hmm. ecstasy. But maybe they wouldn't even think of it uh, in the same way where we think of it because of the title. Right. Warhol's making these films in a period of American film censorship, the sort of a- end of the production code, which really crumbled in 1968. And a lot of films in 63 were being raided by the police. So films like Flaming Creatures and Jean Genet's Enchant d'Amour, which had been made earlier but but was being shown alongside with Flaming Creatures. And so Warhol was very provocative in the title because he wanted to get the kind of attention from the police that these other films were garnering, and then he wanted to show, see, nothing's happening. And so a lot of the films that are more sexually explicit actually have much more neutral titles. So Couch and Three, that doesn't attract police censorship. So Blowjob was a kind of dare in a way. Ara Osterweil is the author of Flesh Cinema, The Corporeal Turn in American Avant-Garde Film. She's a professor of film and culture studies in the English department at McGill University, not an American university, Canadian university. She's also a painter. She does poetry. Thanks, Ara. Thank you so much. Last Sunday, New York Times article, actual New York Times article, here's the first sentence. Near the top of the list of tiresome tasks that the internet has yet to solve is this one. Trekking to the post office. Are they insane? Have they not listened to this podcast and, dare I say, many other podcasts? You can get everything on demand, very much including your post office chores, and it's something called Stamps.com. Anything you could do at the post office, you could do right from your desk with Stamps.com. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes. The internet hasn't invented this. That's the .com part. Here's how Stamps.com works. You register. You go to the Stamps.com homepage. You use the promo code THEGIST. And you get a no-risk trial. You get a $110 bonus offer, and you get a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. A digital scale. You can weigh things through your computer. The internet invented that too. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage. Type in the gist. That's stamps.com and enter the gist and show the New York Times. The internet's invented this, and I'm taking advantage. And now the spiel. The kid who kicked a cat in the luxury of outrage. You know the phrase first world problems? Sometimes it's less genially but more punchily referred to as white people's problems. Like, I ordered the eggshell wainscoting, but it totally clashes with my cream moldings and I had to send the workers home at lunch. Louis C.K. famously called white people problems, quote, when your life is so amazing that you have to make shit up to be upset about. But in reality, white people problems or first world problems really are legit problems. And it is true that you can't get to addressing these kind of problems if first you're not satisfying the basic human needs, food, shelter, clothing. There are some so-called first world problems or white people problems that really are problems. They're very important that we address them. Uh, Let's talk about global warming. Do you consider that a first world problem? The rest of the world does, or at least the developing countries do. The ones without very vulnerable coastlines, at least. They're not motivated that much by attacking global warming. They say, we want factories, we want industry, we want lots of cars. 
that means the economy is growing. We don't have time to worry about the costs and consequences. You, United States, you already did it. China already benefited from their era of pollution. We want our chance. There's a microcosm of this in our country. Ever hear of the war on coal? Coal miners are not doing well. Kentucky is a little like Azerbaijan. They have a lot of natural resources, and they don't want to put the brakes on their economy for someone else's air. At least that's how they see it. And also, let me throw this into the mix. Not all first world problems are liberal, unlike what Louis C.K. was implying. Let me give you an example. When I covered politics, I did a lot of races in Pennsylvania, and I talked to G. Terry Madonna, who ran the Keystone poll. I think it's now the Franklin and Marshall poll. And he said that Pennsylvania voters are basically conservative, except when times aren't good enough to allow them to be conservative. There's a lot of union workers, a lot of blue-collar workers, and when times are bad, and when they're jobs are at stake. They are very liberal in their economic policies. They sort of don't have the luxury of voting on social issues. When they do, when times are more flush, then you could win if you're a pro-gun rights candidate or you could win if you're anti-abortion, that sort of thing. I just mention all that because it complicates the idea that white people problems are consistently of a liberal bent. It all came to mind when I read about the story of the kid who kicked the cat. It was actually on the front page of the New York Times. It's been a big story that the Daily News has been playing over and over. So Andre Johnson, 22 years old, kicked a cat and he laughed about it. The video of this went viral. At first, he beckons the cat with a here kitty kitty. (laughs) And then you hear his callous friends laughing as the cat flies through the air. It's really horrible. Soon a Facebook group popped up, Justice for King. That was the name of what the activists call the cat. The pictures of Andre Robinson in court really grabbed me. The pictures were narratives in themselves. So there's Andre Robinson. He's actually looking at his cell phone. He's next to, I think, his mother. He has a tucked-in white shirt, black pants. But his belt buckle is pretty gaudy, this gold YSL Yves Saint Laurent logo. He's dressed like someone else's idea of how to look nice for court. And staring at him is this cluster of white ladies. They have glasses. They have shortish hair. They have tote bags. The Daily News, who put Johnson on its cover, has other photos with other ladies who look just like the ladies in the New York Times picture. They're all the cat activists, and they're all white. Combating animal cruelty clearly is a first-world problem. When animals do your work or the difference between nourishment and hunger, you have a different relationship with them than we do in the prosperous, industrialized world of 2014. But this one has become a white person issue. I judge this by going to the Justice for King Facebook page. The activists are blowing the whistle on other abusers. So here are the other abusers they cite. A 29-year-old man from Queens said to have abused a dog. He's black. Travante Mitchell from Akron also kicked the cat. Black. Denzel Ogletree. He's also black. The Facebook comments, almost all women, and all were white until I got to the first blackface, a guy named Curtis Sumter, who wrote... He's a kid who did something stupid. This is ridiculous. Sumter was roundly rebuked with comments such as, most serial killers start as animal abusers. Then another blackface popped up in the comments, E.D. Spencer. On the one hand, this guy did something stupid. On the other hand, I see a lot of comfortable white animal activists with a lot of unexamined racism and classism here. That comment was not well received. Susan Longhain. 
black, white, red, yellow, checkered. If you abuse an animal, I want you to go to jail. No racism, just a heartfelt love of animals. Loretta Perone. He did not do something stupid. He did something evil. Like while patting a person on the head and sticking a knife in their back. We are a mixed family of black and white. Don't turn this into a race issue. Marianne Barcelona. This is not a race issue. Valerie Munns. Edie Spencer, why are you whining about race when this has nothing to do with race? I did find one activist of color as part of this group, Gloria Strakerin. She was uh, in a Daily News article. But I should also add that the main picture on this Facebook page says, when this picture of alleged abuser Andre Robinson hurts this picture of a cute kitten, we demand this picture of jail bars. So they're calling Andre Robinson a this. They're demanding he gets sentenced to a year in jail for his crime. There was no mention of the racial dynamic in the Daily News coverage or in the New York Times coverage, but in my reading, it seems shot through with race. And I would just remind the cat lovers what I'm sure they already know, that acting humanely, which means with humanity, extends to everything and everyone. And that's it for the show today. I'm blowing out the credits. Yes, Andrea Salenzi, Andy Bowers, Jokes, pun, attorney general jokes. We get it. We love them. But I want to say this. Today is our first ever Slate Gist Pledge Drive. But I'm not asking you for money. No, wait, wait. Don't leave me. We don't want your money. We want your effort. Help us help you. I don't want to annoyingly tell you what the price of a cup of coffee is. I don't want to compare anything to how much you pay for cable. I hate that trope of pledge drives, right? Because cable and coffee are the two most expensive things on earth. So let's not compare anything to them. We're asking for a pledge in the old sense of pledge. We want an 18-year-old college freshman who we paddle. No, no. We mean a vow, an oath. We want you to make an effort. An effort to get one other person to subscribe to this show in the next week. That is all one other person. If they don't know how to subscribe, help them. If they don't know what a podcast is, teach them. This is the single most important thing you can do to make sure the gist sticks around for a long time. And the more listeners we have, the more we'll be able to bring you vexillology reports, Anten Twigs, Andrea's Jingles, Lopstars, post-pretty impact statements, and long, long talks about pornography. Where else can you get all the good porn content with so much erudition and so little titillation? It's not that I'm above titillation. I'm just not as good as it as I am at making attorney general jokes. So please help us sign up some more subscribers. I'll plug this idea in upcoming shows to remind you and also so that the new listener who you sign up this week will be able to hear this pledge drive fresh. Thank you and thanks for listening. Hi, it's Mike. I'm in a cab heading uptown, but I just heard some breaking news. So I had to tell everyone... I'm here in my cab with my son. It's about the live Culture Gab Fest that's going to be in L.A. on the 8th of October. They have added a guest confirmed is Natasha Leone. The Natasha Leone? Yes, the Natasha Leone of Orange is the New Black. So go to Slate.com slash live and find out information on that Slate Culture Gab Fest on the 8th.